0: Hello, and welcome to Prime Ed's podcast series on influenza. This first of three podcasts will focus on influenza management in 2020, what you should know about prevention, diagnosis, and identifying candidates for treatment. We welcome Dr. Solomon, Associate Physician in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Instructor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. The learning objective of this podcast is to Describe recommendations for the management of patients with suspected or confirmed influenza and those at high risk for complications. Before we get started, let me remind everyone that this podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from Genentech, a member of the Roche Group. For more information, please visit the activity page for this podcast on www.primed.com.
1: My name is Daniel Solomon and I'm an infectious disease doctor at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. Flu season is just around the corner and this year we face the possible threat of dual epidemics of influenza and COVID-19. Today I'll be reviewing influenza epidemiology, some of the keys to influenza prevention, and the recommended approach to the diagnosis of influenza in the clinic. So let's start out with a review of flu epidemiology. There are two dominant strains of influenza, influenza A and influenza B. Now, I was always taught that influenza B caused a milder illness, but it turns out that's not true. The two are totally indistinguishable in clinical practice, and both can cause severe disease and can cause death. In a typical flu season, influenza A is the dominant strain early on, and then influenza B tends to peak a little bit later in the season turns out that the last flu season, 2019 to 2020, was the exact opposite of that, where influenza B peaked a little bit early. And then in January of 2020, influenza A became the dominant strain. Influenza has a major impact on morbidity and mortality every single year in our country. The CDC keeps really great data on this year to year, and they estimate that anywhere between 9.3 million and 45 million individuals in the United States get the flu every single year. And that results in between 12,000 to 60,000 deaths. So let's put this in a clinical context. Who's at the highest risk for complications or death from the flu? And you probably have your list of um, conditions in your mind. I like to separate that list into three different categories. The first big category is anyone who's immunocompromised. So this would be anyone with um, a disease that causes immunosuppression, like advanced HIV or AIDS, cancer, anyone who's on medications that lower the immune system, like corticosteroids or biologics. And I would also include in this group anyone at the bookends of the age spectrum, so young kids under the age of two and adults over the age of 65. The last group that I would put in this category is pregnant women. There's good data to show that pregnant women are at risk for complications and death from the flu, and this is due at least in part to the relative immunosuppression that they experience during pregnancy. The second category is anyone with an underlying comorbidity like chronic lung disease, heart disease, kidney disease, liver disease. The group that I want to highlight here for you is individuals with obesity, especially anyone with a BMI over 40 is at a hugely increased risk of complication or death. And then the third category is anyone with a social factor that puts them at increased risk for disease acquisition. or it decreased um, access to health care services. So this would be people living in long-term care facilities or nursing homes where they live close to one another, or um, anyone who struggles with poverty or other social determinants of health that decrease access to health care. Those are individuals who are at higher risk for complications. Why is it important to have those people in our minds? So I think about these folks as the ones that I really want to focus my attention on, making sure that they're getting vaccinated if they do get sick, keeping close tabs on them because they're at higher risk for getting complications down the line. But even as we invest a lot of energy in our high-risk groups, we shouldn't lose sight of the lower-risk groups. And I want to highlight here children between the age of five and young adults the age of 19. So although this group is not at high risk of death from the flu. There's interesting data to show that this group of people, again, ages five to 19, contribute the most to the spread of the disease. So if we think about how to decrease overall health impact of the flu, I think it's important to think about prevention efforts in these low risk groups as well. So vaccines and education, I think, are just as important for, for these individuals. Okay, so I'm going to back up here for a moment. I mentioned that anywhere between 12,000 and 60,000 people die from the flu every year, and that's a high number no matter where we fall in that range. But it's also sort of a big variation. So what impacts mortality year to year? And there are two major factors. There are vaccine factors, and there are virus characteristics. So if we just look at the virus itself, we know that the flu virus changes year to year. And the degree of genetic change year to year actually impacts um, how much immunity might be in the population. So if we see a lot of genetic change, there'll be no immunity in the population. If there's a little bit of genetic change, there might be some population immunity left over from last year. And then some of those genetic changes actually increase the virulence of the disease, and that's an intrinsic virus characteristic as well. So that's from the virus side. And then there are a couple of factors from the vaccine side that can have a huge impact on mortality. Number one is vaccine effectiveness, so how well does the vaccine prevent disease? And the other is vaccine uptake, so what proportion of the population gets vaccinated? The vaccine effectiveness typically varies between 20% to 60% in any given year. And while we would all wish that that number was higher every single year, the important key here is that even when the vaccine effectiveness is relatively low, it can still have a huge impact on morbidity and mortality. So if we look back to 2018 to 2019, the vaccine effectiveness was only about 29 percent. But even at that low effectiveness, the CDC estimated that the vaccine prevented 4.4 4.4 million flu illnesses and 3,500 deaths. So I'll say it again, even when the vaccine effectiveness is low, if we get enough people in our population to get the vaccine, it can have a huge impact on, on public health. And I would say this year when, when COVID is around, I think there's a heightened importance of the influenza vaccine. And while that might feel intuitive to some of us, I think there are some major barriers to increasing vaccine uptake, um, and some of those are unique to this year. So, you know, as we have shifted our clinical operations to providing a lot of our care via telemedicine, a lot of the patients who rely on those yearly visits in September or October to get the flu shot may not have a touch with the healthcare system where they remember to get the flu shot. So how can we overcome this barrier? Um, Well, I think it's important just to lower any barrier there is to vaccination and make them highly accessible in the community. This is already happening at some pharmacies, but I would think about being creative, like setting up vaccine fairs uh, in schools or places of worship, just allowing people access to vaccines, especially individuals with a history of lower vaccine uptake, like young individuals or populations who have lower access to healthcare in general. So, you know, that's one barrier to vaccine uptake. I think the other major one is vaccine hesitancy or reluctance. I think there are a lot of people out there who just don't like getting vaccines, and and that actually comes from a lot of different places, but I think it's a a barrier that we have to think really hard about if we wanna increase our numbers. You know, we're all so eager for a COVID vaccine, but the AP just did a study and said, You know, If there was a COVID vaccine today, how many of you would be ready to get it? And of that survey, only 50% of Americans in that survey responded they were ready to get the vaccine, and that number was significantly lower in some key populations that have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic, including Latinx individuals and Black individuals. So again, while it seems intuitive that this is the year to get that vaccine, I think we need to be cautious and and creative about figuring out ways to um, partner with communities and make sure that they understand that the vaccine is safe and really effective. The final comment I'll say about flu prevention is that while the vaccine is our major tool for prevention, we have also learned a lot through COVID about how to decrease transmission of any respiratory illness. It turns out that if you look at the data from the end of flu season last year there was this steep drop-off in flu cases and a big part of that was because of the measures that we had taken to decrease transmission of COVID. Both of the viruses are transmitted via respiratory droplets so the things that we were doing to, to decrease COVID transmission like mandatory face coverings and social distancing also had a huge impact on the transmission of influenza. So I think this is a really important point as we think ahead to our upcoming flu season. If we are able to maintain some of those interventions, like mandatory face coverings in public, we may have the opportunity to decrease the transmission of both viruses simultaneously. And I'll say that preliminary reports out of Australia, where they're in flu season right now, suggest that the burden of flu is markedly decreased compared to prior years, and most people are saying that's due to some of these interventions that we're talking about. So I think this is a really critical point for our upcoming flu season, but even after the COVID pandemic, I actually think this data has important implications about how to decrease that mortality number every year. So as I said, there are up to 60,000 deaths from flu every year. If we find out that these behavioral interventions, such as mandatory face coverings during flu season um, in settings where there's a high population density, can decrease that number to 5,000 or 10,000, well, that would be really interesting. And we could think about saying, what did we learn through this COVID epidemic that we can apply to subsequent years to try to decrease that mortality number from the flu and overall keep our our population healthier? So let's switch gears now and talk about the diagnosis of influenza in clinical practice. And just to simplify things for a moment, let's rewind the clock to before COVID and talk about our approach to diagnosis of respiratory virus um, during flu season. So let's take January 2018. Uh, There's a patient who's calling in with uh, fevers and chills and maybe myalgias that started yesterday. And this morning they have a sore throat, cough, and some shortness of breath. So that's the clinical vignette we'll be working on. When we think about diagnosis of flu, I think there's actually two different conversations we should have. The first is, in whom should we send a flu test? And then the second is, which flu test should we be using? So let's focus on category number one to start out. Who should, when should we send a flu test? And, and there are three questions I think we need to answer. The first question is, are there signs or symptoms of influenza? And if the answer is no, then we don't recommend flu testing. Now, this might seem obvious, but every year we get questions from patients and colleagues saying, uh, you know, I was just exposed to someone with the flu, my sister had flu at home, Um, should I get tested? And the answer is that if they have no symptoms at all, we do not recommend testing. That's number one. The second question is, is the patient going to be admitted to the hospital? And if the answer is yes, then they should be tested for the flu. And there are two reasons for that. The first is clinical. Um, You know, if the patient tests positive for the flu, we're gonna make sure that we focus our interventions on the flu, look out for complications of the flu. If the test is negative, then we need to think more broadly about the diagnosis in order to guide management. And then the second reason is from an infection control perspective, for someone who has influenza, they should be on respiratory droplet precautions if they're in the hospital to prevent spread to other patients. Okay, but then let's focus on this middle group. So let's take patients who have symptoms of the flu, potential uh, symptoms of the flu, but they're not sick enough to be admitted to the hospital. Should we be testing them? And the answer is yes, only if it's going to change clinical management. So let's think about that for a moment. If we are thinking about January 2018 and a patient called in with respiratory symptoms, the recommendation would actually be to manage them over the phone without a test. The idea being you know, flu like symptoms in the middle of flu se- season are likely to be the flu. We'd rather keep those patients out of healthcare settings, away from other patients, away from providers, in order to decrease the spread of flu. And we can initiate um, antiviral medication if indicated um, without a flu test now we can fast forward to 2020 i think that this is going to be a little bit more complicated because patients presenting with non-specific symptoms of a respiratory illness there will be no way to distinguish between influenza and covid on clinical criteria alone now of course there are different viruses Uh, covid puts people at higher risk for blood clots on chest imaging you might see those um, infiltrates the ground glass infiltrates more commonly with covid but influenza can do that too so the only thing that will help us distinguish between flu and covid is a diagnostic test and i would argue that it's it is important to make that distinction for for a couple of reasons the first is that we manage the diseases totally differently for influenza, there are directed antiviral medications, oseltamivir and baloxavir, that have no viral activity against COVID whatsoever. COVID, we don't have good antiviral options for the outpatient setting, but there are several studies underway. The second reason to make the distinction is that the diseases typically follow a different time course, so influenza symptoms typically peak at around day three and usually resolve when it's uncomplicated by about one week after symptoms start. For patients with COVID, they're at highest risk for complications and severe symptoms in week two or three of illness. So making the diagnosis up front can actually help give anticipatory guidance to patients and let them know what to look out for. And then the third reason is infection control. You know, we really need to diagnose cases of COVID in order to decrease population transmission. Um, When we do things like case identification and contact tracing, we need to make that diagnosis. So this year, when patients call in with nonspecific respiratory symptoms, um, I think we will have a lower threshold to recommend testing in order to make that distinction between flu and COVID because it will have an impact on our clinical management. So let's turn our attention to the second question, which is which test should we be using in clinical practice for the flu? Um, And uh, there there are a lot of diagnostic tests that are available. um, And the short answer to the question is that you may be limited by what is locally available. But I'll review two different types of tests here. Um, The first is a rapid diagnostic test, which is an antigen test. I think the benefit of this test is what it says in its name, it's rapid. It usually turns around in less than 15 minutes. It's a good point of care test that can be used in the clinic setting. The limitation to the antigen test is that its sensitivity is fairly low, especially early in disease, so we do see false negative tests. The other test that we recommend if you have access to it is a molecular assay or a PCR test. These tests take a little bit longer, um, but typically can um, turn around in a number of hours. Um, the PCR tests have a high sensitivity and a high specificity, so if you have access to a PCR test, that is the test we would recommend using in order to make the diagnosis. One other test that I'll put on your radar is that um, there are companies that have created multiplex PCRs where you can do a single swab and do a PCR assay for a whole host of different respiratory viruses, including influenza A and B, and then RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, human metapneumovirus, adenovirus, um, parainfluenza. So it's a multiplex PCR test that will give us more granularity on diagnosis. And some of these platforms are also including COVID on their, um, on their diagnostic assay. So this could be a really useful test um, in order to distinguish between influenza and COVID and any of the other respiratory viruses as well. I think the major limitation to a multiplex PCR is going to be cost. Um, These tests typically cost an order of magnitude more than a a uniplex PCR. Um, And if we're thinking about doing this on on a large scale, I think that might be a major limitation. Okay, so I'm just going to summarize the um, testing criteria and then the tests that we recommend here. So remember those three questions that you want to ask yourself. Number one, does the patient have signs or symptoms of influenza? If the answer is no, they don't require testing. Is the patient being admitted to the hospital? If the answer is yes, they absolutely should be tested for the flu. And then the third question is, if they're not being admitted to the hospital, will the result of a test change my clinical management? And I think in the era of COVID, um, this this is gonna be a challenge. Um, And we may want to be doing more influenza testing this year um, than in years past. And I think the challenge will be access to tests, trying to scale up the volume of tests with supply chain issues that we've already seen. Um, But I think we're gonna have a lower barrier for testing this year in order to make that diagnosis. And which test should we be using? If you have access to a molecular test or a PCR test, those are the tests that are going to have the best test characteristics and give you um, a higher sensitivity and specificity. I hope that this podcast has been useful. Um, Again, you know, flu season is just around the corner and hopefully there are some nuggets in here that will help you prepare um, yourself, your practice, and your patients for the flu, really focus our energy on prevention efforts, trying to increase vaccine uptake. And I hope this has also given you a framework for um, who we should be testing in this upcoming flu season and which tests are the ones we should turn to. Thanks for your attention.
0: To obtain your CME credit, please visit primed.com and complete a short post-assessment. If you listen to this podcast on another platform, please refer to the episode description, where there is a direct link to the activity page on primed.com for claiming CME credit.